We're going to open up to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, verse 22. We're going to enter the scene after Jesus' birth, a number of weeks after the birth had taken place, when, according to the law, Mary um, would have gone to the temple to engage with in a purification process. And so, of course, brought along Jesus and, uh, and her husband, Joseph. And this is what it says. It says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it's written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When Jesus is born, one of the things you notice is that nobody or very few people seem to have much of a grasp as to what's going on here. They have like snippets, like an element of the picture. So Mary has some understanding that this child is, has promise on him, that he means salvation for people. And uh, the same is true for the shepherds. They know that God's brought salvation through this child. And the Magi, who read their words at the beginning of the service. So... All these different people have a sort of a partial glimpse on what's going on with the birth of this child. They understand that it's the most weighty moment of their lives. They understand that he is God's plan. But there is just this one man, Simeon, who seems to have, I think, something more complete in terms of the picture of what this child means, of what the birth means. And he seems to be able to articulate it and to have grasped it in his mind. It seems to be the case that he has waited for this like no one else has. And that so that when he is born, the things that he sees in that moment are a fuller picture. And so what I want us to do, imagine there are multiple witnesses. Simeon is our kind of chief witness when, you, when you're looking at the birth of Jesus. And the question, the simplest question I want to ask this morning is, what does Christmas mean? And I want to give you a few answers from the perspective of this probably old man uh, who'd been working in the temple his whole life. And we want to give you a few answers here. And here's the first thing. What does Christmas mean? 
Christmas means the end of spiritual searching. It means that your spiritual searching comes to its terminus, to its end. You see, Simeon here is... He's described as a, as a godly man. He's righteous and devout. And not just that. So you can imagine he's a guy whose entire life is oriented towards God. He's searching for something. He is longing for God's presence, for the fulfillment of spiritual longings. And not just that, but he's a man who has a deep intimacy with God by the Holy Spirit. There's a few times, I don't know if you noticed, there's a few times in this passage where Luke tells us about Simeon's relationship with God as one in which he, has, he shares an intimacy with God by his spirit. It says um, in verse 25 that there was a man whose name was Simeon. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of, of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, who was upon him, uh, this, this revelation about the coming Messiah. And he says he came in the Spirit, to the temple that day. So he, he's a man who enjoys daily communion with God, which just means that he has a living, active, vibrant relationship with God by his Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, he has this, this element of his spiritual life, which is still in the form of a quest. He's still longing. He's still searching. So though he's a spiritual man, there's a sense in which he hasn't found the end of his spiritual journey. Now, I think in a way, he's, he's a picture of all those people who came before Jesus, who were godly, who had spiritual longings, but who only had you know, an incomplete picture of what God wants for you. But he's also a picture for those of you today who have a, something of a spiritual desire. Maybe you are on a spiritual quest. I know that we live in, in an age where it's been described as a secular age because more and more the world has been running away from, from God in terms of its intellectual life and our philosophy and that. But here's the interesting thing. Despite the fact that we live in, in this secular age, there's actually something of an exploding interest in spirituality and in religion worldwide, not just in the East or in the global South, but here in the West as well. It's one of the most interesting things that even as we grow more sort of anti-God, and there's more and more people certainly in our context who, and I mean in London and in Britain, who are against religion, and actively so, despite that fact, there's still a growing spiritual hunger. There was an article that um, was written in the States by a professor from um, Harvard who was describing one of his friends, who she is also a, a teacher of philosophy, and he said that she, wake, she would wake up in the night with something of a terror haunted by what he described as a kind of visceral angst. And he put it in this way, he's, her kind of questions. Was, How can it be that this world is the result of an accidental Big Bang? How could there be no design, no metaphysical purpose? Can it be that every life, beginning with my own, my husband's, my child's, and spreading outward, is cosmically irrelevant. And it seems to me that, you know, I've spent many, had many, many, many opportunities to talk with people who don't believe in God. But one of the things that's, that's clearly, evidently still there in hearts all over the place is this a spiritual hunger, a kind of a longing. The Bible says that there are, there are basically two kinds of people in the world. There's a 
there's a verse at the end of uh, in chapter 2 of two, 1 Corinthians where Paul puts it like this. He says, the natural, the fleshy person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. Paul's saying that you can kind of you can split the world in two in terms of those who he describes as natural people and those who are spiritual. And I don't think he's just purely talking about those who have already become Christians, those who are, but also it captures those who, are, who have a genuine hunger, who have a spiritual quest, and that might be you. Now, when God looks on this man, Simeon, he does a few things for him in his spiritual longing. He leads him by the Holy Spirit. Did you see how it said that he, he came in the Spirit to the temple? And most of you I know here are Christian already. And you think back on your journey of how you came to faith. The reality is that no one came to faith without a work of God. It may be the case that at the time you thought you were reasoning this through. You were thinking it through. You were making decisions. You were searching out the answers to your questions. But when you play the tape backwards, as it were, and remind yourself of what happened in your life to bring you to the point where you saw Jesus, you realize that God's fingerprints were all over your story and your life, the people you met, the places you went. And like Simeon, it's like you know, he's brought by the Spirit, almost physically it seems, that God got hold of him and said, you're going to the temple today, and brought him along. And you look back on your own life and you say, that is... That is what happened to me. God got hold of me by his spirit and brought me to a place where I could encounter this, this person, Jesus. God does that for him. And then he does another thing for him. He opens his eyes. It seems like Simeon has a kind of ecstatic utterance, a kind of prophetic utterance, the bit that's in poetry there. But it's because he's seen something in this child that I don't know how it came to him. But in that moment, when he looks on this baby, his eyes are open. And he says that. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This, what he describes as a light for revelation. This is what God does in the heart of every person who comes to an awareness of the greatness of Jesus. The Spirit moves and weaves the story of your life to a point where you, you have an encounter with this man. And then there's a moment. You may not be able to identify the exact moment, but there is a point in your life where you see him for who he is. And it's a work of God, and it happens mysteriously. And you go from a point of thinking of Jesus, maybe with some admiration or some skepticism or wherever you were at, to a recognition of his greatness as the Lord, as the one who created you, as worthy of your worship, as worthy of your adoration. And when you see him truly, you can't then unsee him. He overwhelms your heart. He captivates your desire. He fills your life in a way like you never expected. And this is what happens to Simeon, even in that moment. And then God does another thing for him. It, says he get, it shows us that he gives him a kind of spiritual rest. It's, I think it's like a sense in that moment when he sees Jesus, a sense of completeness for his life. A sense of having arrived at the end of his journey, of the spiritual longings that have been circulating in his heart, probably for decades. There's a sense in which he comes to a moment of arrival when he sees Jesus. And it's like 
you know, he'd been carrying a longing or a burden his entire life. And in the, the instant that he, he grasps who this child is, all of that is dispelled and he feels nothing but relief. And I want you to just notice something, friends. How different this is from spiritual enlightenment in other faiths. You know, you can, in, in, some, in some faiths, enlightenment is, is used in that language. It might be the pursuit of something like nirvana, where you hope through some gritty determination and will and control of the spirit to attain a kind of a higher state eventually at some point in your life. Even this sort of thinking has crept even into Christianity. In the early centuries of the church, there was a man called Simeon, same name, but they called him Simeon Stylites, because in his longing to experience closest to God and spiritual fellowship with God, he climbed a tall natural pillar in the wilderness, a kind of stone pillar that was naturally occurring in the desert. And this thing was you know, meters and meters off the ground, high, high up. And he lived on the top of this thing, exposed to the elements, for decades. He became a bit of a tourist attraction as people would come to him. They'd bring food that would be kind of winched up and water, and they'd help him to keep living and keep going on his spiritual quest. But when I've heard about this man, Simeon Stylites, I think there's something of a tragedy there because there's a deep, deep misunderstanding about how spiritual enlightenment works in the Christian faith. It's not that you, you start a journey of pressing into God in the hope of one day crossing some threshold by which you can look back on the other side and say to all your other sort of Christians around you, come on guys, it's great up here, just keep climbing. Christian and, and, and spiritual enlightenment is the meeting of a person. It's when it's captured here in this moment when Simeon just sees who Jesus is and that is it. The rest of the story is you falling to, in love with him more deeply and worshipping him more sincerely for the rest of your life. That's the radical claim of the Christian faith, that your deepest spiritual longings are not found in a kind of mystical experience. They're not attained through a kind of moral attainment, but they're in meeting and confronting and in realizing who this person is. And when he shines on your heart, your life begins to change. The meaning of Christmas is the end of spiritual searching. Here's the second thing. The meaning of Christmas means you can die happy. Think about death for a moment. I think I've had a couple of relatives who passed away around Christmas, so it's often actually a time when I do think about death. And just this last week, one of our precious friends lost her grand. And just days before Christmas, and it seems to be that time of year when often that happens. And actually, you know, I think it'd be wrong to avoid this subject entirely, even though it's a time of celebration. But think about what makes a person ready to die. Usually, usually it's a sense of having done everything that you need to do in your life, isn't it? That you, there were certain things you wanted to accomplish, that there was a certain image of what you wanted your life to look like, the family that you want around you, the attainments, the achievements, and that when all those things are in place, perhaps you might feel at that point ready to die. I was reading um, a little while ago about these Americans who conducted a study in which they split these basketball players into two groups. And uh, the one half, they, they talked to them about death before they went on on the court to play basketball. They 
And they wore skull t-shirts to just sort of subconsciously remind them about death. And what they discovered was that the players who'd been thinking about death before they went on the court, they said they took more shots, better shots, and they hustled more and ran faster. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? You think about death and you're a better basketball player, which is an amazing thing. And they call it terror management. Isn't that a wonderful little description? Terror management. And they say it's true of human nature. And it's, it's, it's captured in this way. They say people compensate for anxiety about dying by desperately finding ways to boost their self-esteem. In other words... The fear, the dread that humans share about the reality of death is mitigated and minimized by the thought that maybe your life has been worthwhile. So thinking about death makes you work a little bit harder in order to do something with your life before it happens. And then, you know, that may be true, but even then people are rarely, rarely ready to die, aren't they? And this, you know, think about the reasons are obvious. One is because there's such a terror of the question of what is beyond death. Because no one actually can empirically define what's there. You know, we live in the scientific age, but no scientist can, can tell you with 100% certainty what's beyond the grave. And so we live with this great dread of the uncertainty. And then the great what-if question. What if there is a God? What if I face him when I, when I pass through the veil? And what if he is a judge who looks at my life? So even then, even if you've done everything you want to do in life, and most of us are pretty young, so I think that's extremely doubtful, but even if you did, there's still the case that people live with, with a sense of not being ready, with a sense of having regrets, and it doesn't matter how old you get to be, undoubtedly, this will happen to you without, without Christ in your life. And even when you get there, often it's only through sheer resignation that people are willing to finally die. There was an amazing poem by a Welsh poet called Dylan Thomas, which I think captured something of the, the anger and the inappropriateness we feel about death. When his father died, he wrote these words. He says, you recognize some of this. He said, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And then you see Simeon. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. What's he done? All he's done, it, it seems that th- this peace that he has has nothing to do with the life that he's lived and everything to do with the fact that he has looked on this, this baby. And at that moment, he feels a sense of total completeness about his life. It was John Wesley, the founder of the Methodists and the Methodist church, which went international through his preaching, who said, who said this about about Methodist Christians. He said, our people die well. And you ask yourself the question, why? And here's, here's my contention. I think it, a lot of it has to do with, with Christmas. 
for a couple of reasons. One is because Christmas tells us that God keeps his promises. Here's a man, and I'm, I'm sure he, he must have grown old by this point, or else why was he so thinking about death in this moment? But it seems that God's promises hung on him for decades, that he wouldn't die until he witnessed with his own eyes the, the saving work of God, the consolation of Israel. And so he'd live with this, this weight of this promise upon him. The problem that a lot of people face when it comes to death is that they don't know what kind of God lies beyond. But at Christmas you see that God is a God who fulfills his promises. Simeon knew that in a very personal way. God had said something very specific to him about his life, his experiences, and he fulfilled it and he was ready to die. But it's true on the great canvas of history also. That the God who promised salvation, delivered on his promises, even though it took millennia, literally thousands of years before these promises were seen to be fulfilled, and then arrival. Squealing, shrieking, bloody mess. But there he is, this baby is born. And that changes your perspective on death entirely, because when you know that you're facing a God who keeps his promises... You need then only read what those promises are. There's the opportunity for mercy. That There's the opportunity for kindness on your life. Christmas is the certainty that God has sent his son once and will send him again. As we were praying in the, the worship time. We have peace. We have peace in life. And we can face death because of this baby. But here's another thing about it. That Christmas means that the most important thing about your life is not your life, it's his. I'm still thinking about this, this aspect of facing death, of dying well. He says, he says very simply, my eyes have seen your salvation. And I love that, that sentence because it, it, almost, it almost captures quite perfectly what the Christian faith is about. It's either you have a choice. Either you live with the constant sense of striving in life, the hope that you will attain something, that your life will amount to something, the uncertainty that you've ever arrived or are ever ready to face the grave, or you realize that everything important about your life was accomplished in someone else's life, the life of Jesus, who lived the life in your place. So for Simeon, he doesn't need to do anything at this point. All he needs to do is look at Jesus. And the peace of God surrounds him, comforts him, upholds him, strengthens him, changes his entire perspective, and makes him ready to die. And here's the weird thing. A Christian, the moment you become a Christian, you're ready to die. God may grant you more years. He may not. And in a sense, it doesn't even matter. Because to look at Jesus is to realize that everything important about your life was accomplished in his life, not in yours. His arrival is the guarantee. Friends, I'm telling you this because I think this should have a profound emotional effect on you as you contemplate this season, but also as you're heading into the new year. Often Christians don't let the emotional weight of the reality of Christ's achievements control their life. And I want to just 
encourage you, you do not have to live with a constant sense of dread, a constant sense of striving, a constant sense of being unable to attain something or to match up to some expectation of you. Rather, what the Christian does is, just like Simeon, you look at this, this one, Jesus. You can die happy, which must mean that you can also live happy, right? It must mean that the burdens of life can be lifted off you because you've trusted in, in him. I don't know how to fully capture this. Perhaps it's a little bit like that feeling you have when, you know, if you were really rooting for a team, and you know the agony of being English and watching England play football games, but sometimes when things are going well, there's a moment in a game when enough minutes have passed and enough goals have been scored where you, you begin to relax because you think the oppo- there's no way the opposition can catch up at this point. And you never quite know, especially if you're playing Germany, but... But there's, there's, there's sometimes that moment, it might be you're three goals ahead and there's only ten minutes left or something like that. And you start to relax. And you suddenly realize that you don't need to, you don't need to sit there pulling the chair apart anymore. <laughs> and that emotional, that transition you go through is what I'm trying to capture here. Or maybe it's a bit like, um, you know, a lot of you probably taking annual leave this week. And... I like being on holiday, but the worst, part about, the worst part about it is trying to get all your work done before you go on holiday, isn't it? And you've got the inbox, which you feel you need to empty. But if you manage to accomplish that, and then you put on your autoresponder so that no one can expect you to reply again for the rest of your time off, that sense of, ah, when the last email has been sent, unless you're just totally lacking any conscientiousness, you're just lazy... <laughs> But you know that feeling. You must have had it in some part of your life. Or maybe when you've you've taken an important exam and then you've found out that you passed it. And the relief that sets in. In a way, that's, that's what the Christian's life should look like in perpetuity. Constantly. You're ready to die, which must also mean that you're ready to live each day that God gives you with a sense of peace and a sense of joy and a sense of contentment. And it's out of that that God empowers living for him and for his glory. But it comes from joy. It doesn't come from striving. And I think this emotional journey that Simeon goes through in this moment when he sees this child and says, now I have peace, I've seen him, is exactly what ought to characterize your life as a Christian going into this new year. You can die well. So why not live well as well? Here's the last thing. Christmas means that you've got to make a decision. Simeon, as I said to you at the beginning, I think he sees things about Jesus that no one else seems to have seen. I think he has a clarity about Jesus that no one else has. And he says these really weighty, weighty words when he's speaking to the parents. Having just praised God, he then turns to them and they're, they're marveling. They're, in, they're kind of in shell shock at what Simeon has said. Just that, I mean, these guys have both seen angels, so it must take a lot to impress them. But something about Simeon's conviction and his, what he said to them about this child has totally amazed Mary and Joseph. But then he turns to them and he says, it says he blessed them. And he said to Mary's mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now, here's the, the, the weird thing, if I can put it like that. 
It means that Christmas is not about what most people think it's about. In fact, I would say that our culture seems to have turned the whole thing almost exactly on its head. Because here's what I mean. When you think, what, what, what kind of words capture the Christmas season uh, when you're just interacting with average people in London today? And one of the words that would capture it is a sense of togetherness, right? A sense of unity, a sense of you know, all your hatchets being buried and of celebration, of everyone coming together and gathering together. And this is why, you know, it, it's the one time of year when people, even if you don't like your family, you'll make an effort to be with your family and be together, right? And uh, there's a sense of excitement and dread that goes with that sometimes, depending on, on the family. But it's the one time of year when you think we all come together. And it's captured in that moment in, um, in a Christmas carol. When Tiny Tim says, God bless us, everyone. Most famous line, right? Because Scrooge is there, his family's there, and he just feels this, this wonderful joy of togetherness at Christmas time. It's like, wow, Christmas brings everyone together. I, was, I, I just happened to hear the words of, um, you know, just, just, this is the, how, how sentimental we are about Christmas. Because just listen to the words of this song, this famous song that, comes, that we hear every year. It says, and there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. The greatest gift they'll get this year is life, ooh, where nothing ever grows, no rain or rivers flow, do they know it's Christmas time at all? And I have two problems with that. <laughs> the first is that it's entirely factually incorrect, because I, was, I happened to be in Africa last week, and I saw snow. We were... We were in Morocco, and we saw the Atlas Mountains from a distance, and there was definitely snow all over them. So there's snow in Africa. And here's the other thing. He said, well, it says here in the song that the greatest gift they'll get this year is life, because nothing grows in Africa. It happen, happens to be the most fertile continent in the world. And he said, no rain or rivers flow. I, again, this is just digging a deeper, deeper, deeper hole. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? Do we have any Africans in the house? Do you know it's Christmas? You know it's Christmas. Wonderful. Good. Thank you. So not only is it factually wrong, my other problem is it is sentimental guff, right? Because we're saying, this is Christmas time. This is a time when we all just hug each other and patronize each other. And, you know, we, we impose our superior Western ideals on the rest of the world. And friends... In a sense, we got it entirely, entirely upside down. When Jesus came, the Bible tells us that he came to do the exact opposite to that. And it's quite sobering to actually read Jesus speak for himself on this subject. Listen carefully to these words. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And you ask, why did Jesus speak with such stark language, even it seems almost violent language of the division? And the answer is this, that with the arrival of Christ, the world was split in two. It was cleaved in two. A great fault line came into humanity itself. Because you think about the elements of what Christ 
is and what he came to do. Here he is. He's God in human flesh. He's come with an agenda. He's come actually to conquer. Do you remember the second psalm? How it says that I have asked for the nations as my inheritance. That's the Son of God praying to the Father. I want the nations. And so he's come, as it were, sword in hand. And he has come to conquer those nations. And in the process, he has to do battle against Satan, sin and death. He has to be brutally, bloodily smashed and broken in his own body to redeem us. But with the promise and the certainty that he will stand as judge at the end of time. There's something very dangerous about the arrival of Jesus on planet Earth. It just shows you how how utterly inappropriate some of the carols are, right? You think the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And the kind of cutesy image of what this is about is almost the exact opposite because this this was a statement of God's intention to conquer the earth when this baby was born and to conquer hearts. And so what he does, and I think this is what Simeon is trying to tell us or what he's speaking to the parents here. Jesus, Jesus divides humanity and he puts you on two sides. There's the one side which is characterized by unspeakable grief and sadness. You know, he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall of many. In the Bible, the language of falling is usually associated with what God does to proud, to proud people. And the, the weird thing is you read the Bible is you discover that pride, on the one hand, yeah, it's about people who live irreligious lives, who have no care or no concern for the God who made them. But there's also a pride which is captured by the reality of being a religious person, somebody who thinks that you can dig yourself out of the hole, that you can find a way to God by your own steely effort. And he said, Jesus will come and he is appointed for the fall of many. And there'll be the depths of grief and sadness to find yourself on the wrong side of this man. And there's something threatening about that. And there's something of that threat that all of us should feel when we contemplate the arrival of this child because he is dangerous. Because he has a claim to the throne. Because the wrong person is on the throne. And Jesus means to topple that person. If it's you on the throne of your own life or whatever it is on the throne of your life, he means to do battle. He's appointed for the fall of many. But he also adds this. He's also appointed for the rising of many. The opposite there is true. If the language of fall is to do with pride, the language of rising in the Bible has to do with with humility. That what God looks for in the people whom Christ has come to bless and to bring unimaginable joy to their lives, he looks for those who are willing to repent of their sin and willing ultimately to just receive the gift of this child, to recognize that the salvation that God works is not something that you work for or attain, but something which, and this is a conflict with the pride of wanting to do something with your life, something which you receive as a gift. That's the essence of our faith. 
that you recognize that you have nothing to add to what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection in which he redeemed you from sin and brought you into his kingdom of light. You have to make a decision. Christmas forces that upon you. It puts you in conflict with this man. It puts you in confrontation with his arrival. It means that you can't be indifferent or apathetic to the reality that God took on human flesh and entered this world. It's not something that you can sing about. As so many do in the Christmas season, with loud mouths but blank minds. It's something that you must grapple with if you have not done so already. And for us who know Jesus, friends, I just want to encourage you in this moment that we must come again to him and bow and give thanks. Simeon says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul. And he's speaking there of the fact that Jesus would bear the grief of God's anger on the cross, that he would be killed. And I think it's totally impossible to contemplate the weight of Christmas without also thinking about what this baby came to do for us, how he was our savior. He came in order to die. Can I invite you to pray? In a couple of moments, we're going to take communion. And there's something weirdly jarring, isn't there? about taking communion at Christmas. Because here we are, we're celebrating the arrival of the life of Jesus by eating his body and drinking his blood. By commemorating his death. But friends, this is the perfect way for us to honor him as Lord. It's the perfect way for us to worship him as we enter this time of festivity and feasting and happiness. Let the weight of this humble you to the ground. Let it lift you up in joy in a fresh way. Just cast aside all your anxious burdens at this time. And remember, Jesus, it's all about him. And as you think about the life that you want to live in this coming year, again, it's all about him. How releasing that is. How freeing it is. How joy-giving it is to remember that. So we eat and we drink deeply because we consume the grace of God in this man, Jesus. We cast aside the burdens of trying to live a life of achievement. And remember, no, it's better to be more like Simeon. His whole sense of fulfillment came from just looking at that baby. And that's enough. If you're not a Christian and you think, well... Christmas time 2018 seems about the right time for me to give my life to this Lord Jesus. I want to encourage you right now, have dealings with God. Just turn to him and, say, and you can just simply acknowledge your need for Christ and confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. And that's as simple as that. It's not a difficult thing to become a Christian. Of course, God may then demand everything. And he does. But friend, there's nothing that you can give that he won't outgive. Speak to him now if you want to become a Christian. 
Let me pray.